when Eamon de Valera had the idea of a school of theoretical physics, uh, he said in the Doyle that all was needed was men, pencils and paper, and a few books. And that essentially is, is, is still the case. The truth is there's so much groundwork to be done. If we don't do it, then it will still continue to be undone. And de Valera replied, yes, I appreciate that. You are on the frontiers of knowledge. You are working on the frontiers of knowledge. The Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies, that unusual amalgam of Celtic studies and theoretical physics, was the brainchild of Eamon de Valera. Established by law on June the 19th, 1940, the two original schools of the Institute were Celtic studies and theoretical physics. A third school, that of cosmic physics, was added in March 1947. Referring to the school of Celtic studies, Mr. de Valera spoke about the huge mass of Irish manuscripts, particularly those relating to early modern Irish, lying unedited. This was a very good reason, he maintained, why Ireland ought to be a world centre for Celtic studies. With regard to the School of Theoretical Physics, Mr. de Valera said, there's a branch of science in which you want an adequate library, the brains and the men and just paper. We have already in the world an important place, or had in the past an important place, in mathematics and theoretical physics. The name of Hamilton is known wherever there's a mathematical physicist or theoretical physicist. This is the country of Hamilton, a country of great mathematicians. We have the opportunity now of establishing a school of theoretical physics, which I think will again enable us to achieve a reputation in that direction, comparable to the reputation which Dublin and Ireland had in the middle of the last century. Long before the Institute was formally set up, discussions were underway. Brian O'Keeve, director of the School of Celtic Studies. Uh, as you know, the Institute was set up in 1940 under an act uh, of the Arachtas, uh, but the uh, roots of it go way back to the School of Irish Learning, which was founded by Kunomar and Strahan uh, at the beginning of the century, and in a sense, we are the heirs to the School of Irish Learning. Now, during the intervening years, a great deal of research work with regard to lexicography had been carried down the Royal Irish Academy, uh, but in the 30s, uh, the idea grew, uh, especially in the mind of Mr. de Valera, that some sort of an independent body might be useful for carrying on research in Irish studies and in the broader uh, area of Celtic studies. And it was out of that idea uh, that the, the School of Celtic Studies and the Institute, uh, institute as a whole uh, came into being. Here's Professor J.R. McConnell of the School of Theoretical Physics on that school's origins. In fact, there had been meetings over at government buildings uh, between Mr. de Valera and a number of other people. Mr. de Valera was also a student of Professor A.W. Conway, and he had a great reverence for him. So he was a, uh, Conway was a very outstanding man. And there were meetings held in the summer of 1938, and other people who were present were um, Whittaker, E.T. Whittaker, who had been Astronomer Royal for Ireland at the beginning of the century and Director of Dunsink Observatory, and also George D. Birkhoff of Harvard University. And that now, de Valera's idea was to have 
a rather high-class institute in the two fields in which he had special interests, Celtic studies and mathematics. And he took as a model the Institute of Advanced Studies in Princeton and called the, our institute something of the same, at Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies. But it's a, the idea was to model it on that and to have first-rate men here. And the first team of professors that he had in mind were certainly first-rate men, apart from Irving Schrödinger, there was E.T. Whittaker, and then A.W. Conway. But the war started, Whittaker could not come, couldn't, he could not leave his chair in Edinburgh, and A.W. Conway was appointed president of UCD, so he couldn't very well come. So it started with uh, Professor Schrödinger, who was already a Nobel Prize winner. And uh, the idea was, as I said, to have a high-class research institute, that the, the members of the institute would, be, would not be obliged to give lectures, and that they could devote their time almost entirely to research. I think that the fact that uh, Schrodinger was the, the first senior professor in this school has made a, a, a tremendous mark on the development of the school. Professor John T. Lewis, present director of the School of Theoretical Physics. Uh, his example and his interests uh, have led to the developments which have taken place here. And also, of course, uh, one must remember uh, Professor Singh, who was uh, still active at 87, who came back here after a very distinguished career in the United States. Uh, Professor Singh spent over 25 years uh, here uh, at the Institute and produced two remarkable books on uh, relativity, which increased the fame of uh, the Dublin Institute. It all goes back, of course, to uh, De Valera. Professor Thomas Murphy, director of the third school of the Institute, that of cosmic physics. As far as I can make out, he, his principal intention was to get hold of Dunsink Observatory, which, of course, was in the hands of Trinity College at that time, uh, because uh, he, being a mathematician, of course, was very interested in Rowan Hamilton. Rowan Hamilton, of course, associated with Dunsink, and he wanted to get Dunsink, and so on. And he had tried various uh, approaches to Trinity, but, of course, they had... It was bound up with statutes and things like that, and he couldn't get it any further. So, eventually, he did set up a school of... Um, the Institute and the School of Theoretical Physics, of course, which basically is mathematical. But he still wanted to get Dunsink. So, of course, I think things then went quiet. And after the war, apparently, he again took up this business and eventually succeeded. And uh, he then brought together, he had in mind, of course, certain people uh, to get. Schrodinger, of course, was the backbone and the whole start-up of theoretical physics. And he had been dealing with, uh, particularly Whitaker of Edinburgh, about the setting up of the astronomical section. And uh, I, there are other reasons which, of course, I don't really know, but I just know the background that he wanted to do some geophysics. And then there was, of course, uh, an old Czech professor here, uh, Polak. I, but, but 
what I mean by here, was in the country. He was in the Met service. And he and uh, Di Valera got very chatty and talkative, and he knew, they knew one another very, very well. And apparently he put over, as Polak put over the thing, that we sh he should have some sort of a school. And I think basically there were, he was interested, as Polak was interested, in a kind of meteorological thing. And also in geophysics, he was, of course, an old professor of geophysics. He was a refugee. And so that they apparently, or rather De Valera and a few of uh, his advisors, then decided they would put together as a kind of a group. And they just, somehow or other, they decided, you'll have to give it a name. They called it cosmic physics. But I presume cosmic physics meant it would take everything. Astronomy, <laughs> geophysics, and then in between the cosmic rays. At the outset, there was some opposition to the idea of an independent research institute. Well, there was some uh, amount of questioning as to why an independent institute should be set up, why the institute shouldn't be part of the university organization, that is, uh, in the Nash University, uh, which was really in question rather than Trinity College. Uh, and um, it was felt by some people that really this should be attached to University College Dublin. But it is interesting that Professor Michael Tierney of University College, uh, in the discussion of the bill to set up the Institute uh, in the Arachthus, um, came out strongly in support of the endowment of work in relation to the Irish language. And he said, the setting up of this Institute, if it has properly gone about, might be one of the most important things we could do for the whole future of the country. And the Institute was set up. It came into operation at the end of 1940, uh, and it is still going strong, thank God. So the early opposition was overcome. Gradually, the Institute's ideals came more clearly into focus. Uh, when the School of Celtic Studies was founded, um, uh, I think Mr. De Valera, who was the prime mover in its foundation, uh, had the idea uh, that he would have here at the top um, the best scholars available to him. Uh, and coming in at the bottom, he would have young scholars uh, who had shown some ability uh, and that these would be trained. Uh, he envisaged uh, these young scholars as getting training, going out, into posts in universities and other uh, such institutions. Now, in fact, this has happened with almost every young person who came in here. Um, I came in here, I went out after 10 years into University College, I came back after 15 years. David Green came in here, he went out, went back to Trinity College, and then came in here in 1967, same year as I did as senior professor. This has been the pattern. In time, the Institute began to establish itself internationally. Ireland, I think, is the centre for Celtic studies now. Um, we, can't, uh, we can't do as much work as we would like to do because we simply haven't got the capacity or the funds to do this. But there's no doubt about it. Um, when uh, Bergen uh, came to Dublin in 1904 to attend the School of Irish Learning, um, there was nowhere that he could be trained in research work in Ireland. This was a, a three-week school which was held. Uh, and he was sent to Germany with a, a scholarship provided by Alice Stockford Green, 
uh, and uh, he came home from Germany uh, trained in uh, methods of research uh, and he then gave on this training as professor first in the School of Irish Learning and later after 1909 in the in University College in Dublin. Uh, but at that time it was to Germany uh, or to Norway, but in that time and, and later it was to Germany, it was to Norway, uh, it was to Paris uh, that people went for training. This is no longer the case. Uh, this is not to, to say that people don't go to these places, but I think that it is true to say that people over the, the world over think more in terms of Dublin as the centre for Celtic studies now. Professor O'Keeve went on to talk about the problem of resources. Uh, perhaps the greatest turning point uh, in one way uh, is the reduction of the number of young people who have been uh, provided with employment in the Institute. Uh, when I was here in the 40s, there were, I think, six of us uh, as uh, junior staff uh, at, the, at the lowest level, uh, research assistant. Uh, this r reduced drastically uh, over the next 20, 25, 30 years. Uh, we now have one uh, full-time research assistant, uh, and we are suffering, like so many institutions, uh, from containment. Uh, there has been a policy of containment, I think, uh, in force with regard to the Institute, not merely uh, since uh, 1981, when the most drastic embargo came, but uh, over a very large number of, long number of years. Another long-standing member of the School of Celtic Studies is Professor James Carney, who recalls the early directors, those founding fathers of modern native Irish scholarship. I remember meeting Best and meeting Burton. O'Reilly wasn't quite on the scene yet. Best and uh, Bergen were the bosses. And uh, I was handed over to Best. He was to take care of me. I had been very friendly with Bergen before that as a young man. I used to meet him constantly in Jared Murphy's house. His great importance was that he was a source of inspiration to every single one of us. And I have never uh, met an uh, academic who inspired such love. Sometimes I wonder now, uh, with elderly cynicism, whether he deserved it or not. But we all loved Bergen. Um, he brought one thing to us above all that Irish people need, a respect for accuracy. Uh, when he was leaving us as students, he said, I have three words of advice to you. The first is be accurate, and the second is be accurate, and the third is be accurate. Uh, Bergen was the channel through which what is, was best in German scholarship came to Ireland. Of course, Bergen lasted a, for a very short time, and then we had that utterly 
inspiring figure, Thomas O'Reilly, a man that I didn't love in the way I loved uh, Bergen, but one could not but be inspired by him. And his uh, mind covered the whole range of Irish tradition and history from the very beginnings to the, the modern dialect. What's your own view of the way the Celtic Studies end of this institute has developed? I think it has developed very well in as much as we have trained dozens of people and they have gone out from here to occupy uh, academic posts all over the world. And they have been ambassadors for Ireland and for Irish scholarship. And we are a kind of a, a nerve center of uh, Irish scholarship in touch with everybody. Professor Carney went on to talk about the range of publications. Uh, apart from linguist, linguistic work, work in Irish history and literature, we have uh, a large uh, amount of work on Irish Latinity, a very fine series which has a great sale throughout the world. Uh, then Father McNamara's work on Apocrypha in Irish material that would fit in with our work on patristic material and such like. A recent addition to the Celtic Studies School of the Institute is Professor Heinrich Wagner, whose major work, A Linguistic Atlas of Irish Dialects, was published by the Institute. It is seen from the um, attraction the summer school of the Institute has had over a number of years, over the last, I don't know, 15 years, Scholars from all parts of Europe, from America, and even as far east as Japan have attended this uh, summer school. And also uh, Celtic Scottish, it had had an influence also in Russia in as far as uh, I'm I am aware of the fact that in Russia, scholars study not only the old, old Irish, the manuscripts, but they also study the modern spoken language. And of course, the the uh, greatest success of the school in modern times was undoubtedly the publication of Michal O'Shiel's uh, Grammar of Modern Irish, which has sold, I think, I believe, thousands of copies already all over the world. So uh, I would say, in modern times, the the institute, the um, the Celtic School uh, in, in Dublin has gained uh, tremendous, um, uh, in, has developed tremendous interest in various parts of Europe and, of course, in particular in America. What inroads has it made on the, the hegemony that uh, Germany enjoyed in, in the field of, of uh, Celtic scholarship? Well, like, uh, being, not being Irish, I can clearly say that the Institute has become the centre of Celtic studies in the world, not only on account of its uh, of attracting scholars from all over the world, but also on account of its publications. You mustn't forget uh, one, perhaps the one of the greatest uh, 
living Celtic scholars, Kenneth Jackson, has published his work on, his great work on Breton in uh, the Institute, and a number of other, uh, other uh, foreign scholars contribute regularly to the periodical of the Institute Celtica. Some members there of the School of Celtic Studies. Now, the second school of the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies is that of theoretical physics. Professor John T. Lewis. We're interested in understanding the fundamental properties of matter, uh, especially those concerned with uh, heat and uh, optical properties of matter. And we work simply with pencil and paper uh, making calculations. Uh, of course, we're interested in the experimental verification of what we uh, predict, uh, but that kind of thing requires such expensive equipment that it, there's no chance of it being done in this country. For example, uh, last year we made some calculations about the effects of uh, temperature on the spectra of atoms. Now this was based on work which has been going on here for the last 10 years. Uh, and we were delighted when the National Bureau of Standards in uh, Boulder, Colorado, using the very latest uh, laser spectroscopy equipment, uh, verified our uh, calculations. We have an, an enormous uh, number of visitors given our size. There are only three permanent members uh, in the School of Theoretical Physics, uh, Professor McConnell, Professor O'Rafferty and myself, but we have upwards of 30 visitors a year from all over the world, uh, staying for a matter of days to a month. We also have six uh, postdoctoral students each year. One of our functions is to train people in the methods of research, and uh, we do this at a very advanced level. We have, as I say, uh, six postdoctoral students a year, uh, usually uh, two from Ireland, uh, maybe one from the United States, two from Germany, maybe one from Japan or India. Uh, we've had a tremendous range of uh, nations represented over the years. What determines the kind of problems that, that, that you tackle at any particular time? Well, first of all, what we're able to do, and secondly, uh, the intellectual challenge of the problems. We go for uh, what we regard as the most interesting at the time, which we have any hope of solving. The great name in physics of the early days of the Institute was that of Erwin Schrödinger, Professor J. R. McConnell. First of all, he was uh, a big figure who could attract people to town. Now, in particular, when I was here just a few months, in, the, in July 1942, there was held a colloquium and apart from Schrodinger, Heiter, and Conway, Walton, these people, Dirac came over from Cambridge, and Eddington also from Cambridge, who were 
two first-rate men. P.P. Eiffel came from Belfast. He was also an emigre, a, a specialist on um, theory of crystals, a very distinguished man. And he was an, able to bring us in contact with the sort of intellectual life that we had been isolated from before that. Another way in which Schrodinger and Heitler, because both of them were both very distinguished people, Heitler was one of the co-founders of theoretical chemistry with Fritz Rondon, and um, they um, put, they got the idea over that university teachers should be doing research. Now, I can say in my time in University College Dublin in the mathematical school, I, there was only one man doing research, really, and that was Professor Conway. In the experimental uh, sciences, like experimental physics and chemistry, things were different. So um, that was one thing he got over. Another thing was that at that time, I remember Heitler telling me, there were only about three institutions in Great Britain that had courses in quantum mechanics, which was a comparatively new thing, and which, um, of, and of which um, Schrodinger was one of the founders, and he, he established wave mechanics. Now, as a result of the seminars which were held here, and also as a result of the people who were trained here, already in the 1940s, we had courses going in quantum mechanics, in mathematical physics, in experimental physics, and in chemistry in a very short time so that we were being brought up to date. So I would say that those were two ways in which Schrodinger and Heitler left their mark on university education. And of course, as I said, to put before university teachers the ideal that to try to keep doing research. Professor Lachlan O'Rafferty, also of the School of Theoretical Physics, developed this theme of the Institute's international character. We, we have the a good number of international contacts. Uh, in fact, uh, one of our roles in this country is to create such contacts. And because of our informal structure, it is possible for us to invite people um, that, might, that the universities might find it difficult uh, to invite. And uh, because of this, we have had some names here in the past who, n under normal circumstances, probably would not have been able to come. Examples are um, Casimir, who's the um, director of research at Philips Eindhoven, uh, the centre of Philips industry. Uh, uh, van der Verden, who's a very big figure in the foundation of modern quantum theory. Um, Murray Gell-Mann, who won the Nobel Prize for Physics in um, 1969. Um, Glashow, who won it in 1979. And other people of this kind who are able to get them because of the informal arrangements we have and because of the various liaisons uh, we have with other institutes. Our students go there. We have six postdocs each year and normally at least five out of the six are from other countries. What effect does lack of resources have on the School of Theoretical Physics? Well, directly uh, there is very little effect because, um, as we were saying earlier, this is a paper and pencil <laughs> in institute and that was the original idea. In fact, De Valera has put that down in black and white, that he wanted an institute in which the expense would be paper and pencil. But indirectly, of course, it has a large effect. We couldn't do our particle physics, for example, if other people weren't doing the experiments on the particle. Now, these experiments cost not millions, but billions. 
and uh, they are done in big centres such as CERN, which is the European centre, Brookhaven, which is a large American centre, Fermilab, another large American centre, and uh, Dubna, which is the big Russian centre. Now, the increased technology has meant, of course, that those experiments uh, have become very advanced. And the spin-off for us is that we get the results of those experiments for free, which is a very, very important uh, part of feature for us. But, well, in addition to these um, other activities with respect to um, uh, people going abroad or coming here, one uh, important function of the Institute has been to provide a stepping stone for either Irish students to come back uh, from postdocs uh, positions abroad to find places in our university, in our universities, or alternatively for foreigners to come here, spend some time here, and then get absorbed in our university system. And I would think at the present time there are possibly up to 10 or maybe more people on the staffs of the mathematical physics um, departments in the various universities who are direct, whose presence there is directly due to their coming to the institute. How does a research institute working in theoretical physics justify itself to the sceptical onlooker, Professor Lewis? I'd ask them, what is the relevance of culture? It's basically research and fundamental science is a matter of culture, uh, the culture of a nation. And uh, that ultimately is the, uh, the, is the relevance. Of course, there, there are um, what people call spin-offs from doing fundamental research. Uh, for example, when the engineers in UCD wanted to know about something called stochastic differential equations, uh, they found people here who are expert in them uh, simply because people here had learned about it in, in order uh, to study basic problems in statistical mechanics. I, one can find other examples of this. So as far as the, the, the spin-off, the practical spin-off for the nation goes, it is by way of what people call technology transfer. We bring in by means of visitors and by visits abroad ourself, ourselves, we bring in new ideas, uh, new techniques, and this I think is our principal contribution members there of the School of Theoretical Physics, which was set up at the same time as the School of Celtic Studies in 1940. The third school of the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies is the School of Cosmic Physics. And to complicate matters still further, that in turn is divided into three components, into astronomy, geophysics, and cosmic rays. The present director of the School of Cosmic Physics is Professor Murphy, uh, whose own section deals with geophysics. Uh, the main object of the whole thing really is to find out the structure of Ireland. Ireland is, as well known, of course, is on the edge of a continent, and therefore has it's different to the continent, but it's neither continental nor it's the oceanic, but it's a little bit, an isolated bit, and therefore what our principal object is to find out why is it different? Why is it? Uh, is it the same or is it different to continental things? We, we are the outer kind of limit of the continent. And then, of course, you've got the stepping stones, as I say, out the Porcupine Bank and then through the Rockall Bank, 
which are, of course, as far as we can see, completely detached pieces of the continent. And we are not quite as detached from the continent. But we are still, there is a gap between us. And so the, this is our principal study. It's not just a local kind of thing. It is of interest to worldwide science, you see, for, because it's, um, it's quite well known up to now that the oceans, or what's under the oceans, is completely different to what's under the continents. We're the little bit in between. So that is our main object. So we tackle that by gravity. The magnetics, of course, have been now been done elsewhere, and seismology. Seismology being the uh, now one of the most strongest features of our work here. When you say gravity work, can you give us some idea of, you know, roughly what's involved in that? Oh well, what it involves is is literally measuring gravity on the ground elsewhere at various sites. Usually, we put our the sites are spaced out about one and a. Uh, about two kilometres apart all over the country, and we measure gravity. Now, gravity varies, uh, uh, it, well, it varies, of course, with height above the ground and all the rest of it like that, but apart from that, it depends entirely on the kind of uh, rock structure that's down below us. Now, uh, uh, we mean that down to a fair depth. Uh, geology can only just, as far as a hammer can go, that's about all, or maybe drills, maybe that, but even when you talk about drills, you're only talking about 1,000, 2,000. 3,000 feet, whereas when you're doing things like gravity, you can find out then down to five and six and seven kilometers, and then the seismology takes over from there and goes on down to 30 kilometers, you see, on down. So that you, you have this kind of link up, obviously. Well, the, the, the rocks are of different densities and all the rest of it, and when you measure gravity, of course, you find the variations due to the different densities, and then you analyze from those as to what are the likely causes of the changes in gravity. And of course, that's why I say the mineral people are very interested in all of that. Dr. Murphy referred there to the growth of interest in seismology, which is a special interest of Professor Brian Jacob, who spoke about the projects that they had in hand. They really come in, in two groups. Uh, one is that in that period we've established a network of stations in Ireland, which has got a number of purposes. One is to look at the uh, low-level seismicity that we have in Ireland, and the slightly less low level of seismicity that we get quite close to us, for instance, in the Irish Sea. Uh, at the same time, it's looking at the world pattern of earthquakes. It's part of the world network. We get, every day we uh, see signals from earthquakes in other parts of the world, and sometimes a lot if you get a, a burst of activity somewhere like Japan, North Pacific, for instance. This all comes up very clearly in our records. The other area that we've been working in is that we're looking at the structure of Ireland and to do this we need controlled sources, not uncontrolled ones like earthquakes, and uh, so that means explosion seismology. Um, we had a big programme, for example, two years ago in 1982, which is a profile diagonally across the country from County Louth down to County Clare. The interest there is that um, Ireland has had a very complicated geological past and um, the present Atlantic, for instance, is only uh, as it is the only the present one, it, it is opening at the moment. I think a lot of people know this business of plate tectonics and the spreading zones in the middle of oceans. But obviously it's, it's opened from zero, it was closed. And there was a previous Atlantic which opened on a different line 
and the break in the previous Atlantic was it cut through Ireland and the northwest part of Ireland was attached to the far side in the previous Atlantic. So this suture zone, the zone where it's joined up, is, is a, an area of great interest and that was the reason we did this profile. We are part of the world network of stations. I mean, some stations were installed a very long time ago and they're relatively antiquated equipment. Our stations are fairly recent and are, while they're not right up to the minute, they're a pretty modern installation. And um, we're one of the better networks in Europe, for example, and we have quite an important position that we are the furthest west. Professor Wayman is head of the astronomy section of the School of Cosmic Physics. Well, astronomy grew out of watching the sky and finding out what there is in the sky. And then from about 100 years ago, people began to think, actually, what is happening? Uh, what, are the, what are the physical processes taking place among the stars and so forth? And so we've come a long way since then. And the dominant theme in astronomy is the changes which are taking place in the cosmos. And the physics of these changes is closely related to what we know of the physics in the laboratory of, the, of, of particles, of, of atoms and molecules. So that within the context of, of, of the School of Cosmic Physics, astronomy has a, a crucial critical role. Well, more and more people who are studying physics are finding that the, the great laboratory of the universe is the ideal way in which they can study physics. What kind of traffic is there to and from Dunsink in terms of astronomers visiting here or you uh, working elsewhere? Well, we ha I have done um, several years of work on the international scene, which involved me very heavily for a number of years. That that, has now, that is now drawing to an end. I've been working uh, in the International Astronomical Union for some eight years now, uh, including three years as General Secretary. So this has kept me in contact with astronomers all over the world, very generally, both those whom I know and many whom I have got to know. Uh, we have not very many visitors here, we are hoping next year to have a few visitors because it's our centenary year, 200 years, and we're hoping to have some uh, extra visitors too as part of our uh, marking of this centenary year. We keep in touch with astronomers at the Royal Astronomical Society in London quite a, quite a lot. We, the, the La Palma project is the uh, largely the on the initiative of the Royal Greenwich Observatory, so we're closely in touch with those, them. We also encourage our students to, the, the, the scholars of the Institute, to uh, work on projects which involve cooperation with individuals in different places. And we have one or two new contacts in that way which have developed over the last few months. Professor Wayman is also acting head of the Cosmic Ray section of the School of Cosmic Physics, where the work of Professors Thompson and O'Sullivan has brought the Institute into the space age. Dr. Dennis O'Sullivan. Well, the program at, at the moment uh, involves a number of experiments. The largest one is the one which is at present in Earth orbit. It's on a spacecraft known as the Long Duration Exposure Facility, 
which exposes about 100 square meters of area to space for various experiments. And we have about 20 square meters of that platform for our present experiment. It's the largest one of its type ever undertaken. And uh, it was launched by the Space Shuttle last April, and it has to be recovered so that we can analyze the data. And it will be recovered by a second Space Shuttle mission at the end of March in 1985, in about three months' time. Perhaps you tell us something about the kind of achievement this was, because you, you, there were many applications for it. Well, the, um, it's a continuation of our program of the study of nuclear particles in space, and uh, we study these particles because they are uh, a means of studying the conditions that exist in our galaxy, for instance, the, uh, the type of nuclear interactions that take place in stars, and also what type of conditions exist uh, in interstellar space with, res with respect to um, matter and magnetic fields and so forth. And they give us a lot of information on the history of the nucleosynthesis of elements in our galaxy. And um, about seven years ago, uh, NASA announced they were going to put this large platform into space. Uh, it was the first large recoverable satellite that they uh, had intended to put in space. And they asked for some ideas uh, to put on this and, and to, to use it to its maximum capacity. So uh, we proposed this very large experiment, and uh, they uh, accepted it in international competition. There were quite a few other uh, contenders, but the, they eventually chose the Dublin Institute for the, for the work. And um, we have been preparing that experiment for a number of years now, and it ha as I said, it's successfully in space at present. The Cosmic Ray section of the School of Cosmic Physics is also involved in a European project. We're part of a collaboration involving four or five institutions. Uh, it's a mission to Halley's Comet, which you, you probably have read about. Uh, it will be launched from Kourou in July of, of this year, and uh, the the opponent collaboration, as it's called, involves a small uh, particle telescope which will be on the European spacecraft. It's one of ten experiments chosen for the mission. And with this experiment, we hope to study um, electrons and protons emitted by the sun during the cruise phase to the comet, and also to look at the interaction of protons and electrons and uh, some heavier nuclei in the environment of the comet. And this will be the first time this has been done to, to, to actually look at the the interaction of particles with, with, with the cometary environment. And it involves um, myself and Dr. Thompson, who's also um, my colleague in, in the LF program, and uh, Susan McKenna from Maynooth University, who's a PI, and colleagues at um, STEC in Holland, in Germany, and also in Sydney University in Australia. And so Eamon de Valera has left a legacy that ensures the continuing exploration of material as diverse as the earliest of Irish manuscripts and the latest in heavy particle detection in outer space. A last word from Dr. T.K. Whitaker, who's chairman of the council which administers the affairs of the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies. It's um, extremely important, it seems to me, to have some quiet place of refuge where scholars can pursue research, which may be very difficult for them to do considering the teaching loads they now have to bear in universities. So there's been a constant coming and going between the institute and uh, university teaching posts. The institute also provides a center to which foreign scholars can be attracted. Indeed, in the very beginning, it was a way in which Mr. de Valera was able to find an agreeable refuge for eminent mid-European scholars who had to take refuge here during the, um, the war. And um, 
I could think of the old slogan that we were so proud of, that Ireland was uh, a country of saints and scholars. Well, I think we would all agree the saints are few and far between, so we think we, we must really try to keep up our reputation on the scholarly side. And that is essentially what the Institute is doing.